Hello, this is Vinay Nadkarni, head of the Portfolio Specialist Team at ClearBridge, and it is my pleasure to have you listen to the latest in our series of podcasts that address recent market volatility and opportunities and threats our portfolio managers see in their markets. This one is titled Finding Growth in a Low-Growth World, and I am so thrilled to have my colleagues and friends Margaret Vitrano and Elisa Mazin, both growth investors with a strong valuation and process bent, Margaret on the large-cap growth strategy, and Elisa on the international growth strategy, with their collective nearly 50 years of investment experience to talk about specific areas of note in their marketplaces. We'll kick off the call with Margaret and then Elisa, giving a market outlook and the opportunities and risks they see in the environment today, and then ask a few frequent questions we have been getting in recent discussions with clients. With that, Margaret, take it away. Thanks, Vinay. In the, in the large-cap growth strategy, you know, we are bottom-up investors, but my partner, Peter Bourbeau, and I also think a lot about having a broad group of quality companies contributing to performance. That helps manage risk in the portfolio and hopefully helps generate consistency of returns over time. At the risk of overstating my sports knowledge, it's a bit like trying to construct a winning sports team. Just as when a coach is assembling a baseball team, he or she wants to have some players who are aggressive, who always try for the home run, some players who can be relied on to play consistently and help advance his or her teammates, and then a few players who may be diamonds in the rough. We think of portfolio construction similarly. You know, the select names, we call it our select bucket, are no more than a third of the portfolio. Those are high-growth companies, um, but sometimes more volatile stocks. The stable bucket is more than, a, more than half of our portfolio, and those are good quality, steady growth companies, good team players, if you will. Um, and then lastly, the, the cyclical bucket is no more than a quarter of the portfolio, but those are companies that we believe may have higher earnings power than they're currently delivering. The point of this diversification, in our, in our view, is to help create a portfolio that can withstand different macro environments better and generate more consistent portfolio performance. Our exposure to energy is, is actually a good example of that diversification in play. It's not a sector that you would think um, would typically be in a growth portfolio, and it is one, our, one way our portfolio tends to look a little bit different than our peers. But having the exposure to energy when we thought energy was oversold um, and may move differently than the rest of the overall market over a reasonable amount of time um, has been helpful this strategy. You see that year-to-date where it's actually been a, a contributor to performance. So, hi, this is Elisa Mazin. Um, maybe I'll just give you a little background on uh, how we think about growth on the international side. So, our investment philosophy is aligned around a valuation approach to growth. So, it doesn't matter what kind of style you invest in, be it value or growth, when you overpay for an investment, we know it's going to yield poor results. Um, in terms of our process, uh, the way we've structured it is to identify mispriced growth ideas, uh, and typically that mispricing um, revolves around the duration of growth or the magnitude of growth. Uh, we then do the work that validate the names um, uh, that represent ideal investment candidates, invest with a long-term time horizon, and then allow that growth to compound. Uh, the investment candidates that we invest in tend to have a quality bias, um, et cetera. Um, we don't believe that growth is a one-size-fits-all term. We define growth very broadly, uh, and that allows us a diversified pool of investment candidates, not combining ourselves to a narrow universe of stocks. We're all cap in our focus, and the majority of our assets, although not all of them today, are invested in de the developed markets, uh, with the MSCI EFA, that's Europe, Australia, and the Far East as our benchmark. Uh, the way that we think about growth is we parse it into three segments, 
emerging secular and structural and size the allocations and the stocks within them for risk and upside capture. Um, let me talk a little bit about those segments. So emerging growth is, is typically what most people think of when they think of growth. It's the riskiest segment, and it accounts for typically anywhere from 0 to 20% of the portfolio. This includes innovative, disruptive companies uh, with promising solutions, uh, high revenue growth, high potential for expansion. Usually what's mispriced here is the size of the opportunity. The largest allocation that we have is our secular growth bucket, um, typically, that's anywhere from 40 to 70% of the portfolio, and that's the least risky segment of growth. These are well-established companies, winning business models, still have many good years of growth ahead. They are, they are consistent return generators, high free cash flow, and that compounds over long periods of time. Um, usually, the magnitude, again, and durability of growth is something that is, tends to be mispriced here. People tend to look very short. Uh, in our structural growth segment are companies that we believe are going through a step change in profits and returns. These can be restructuring stories or they can be cyclical recovery stories where we think the market misprices the acceleration in earnings growth. And often we get low multiples here as well. Um, here we'll have a non-consensus view from the market that the company's earnings can actually grow at a greater rate than most believe. Um, Top-line growth is not necessarily something that is an important feature for these type of names. Um, maybe lastly, in terms of how do we look at a very large universe of stocks, um, we're very systematic in how we identify investment candidates to ensure that we have a repeatable investment process. We use a proprietary model that searches for ideas. Uh, and we believe that that model is unique to the uh, strategy on the international side. It allows us to review the entire universe in a systematic way. Uh, it also uh, allows us to be fairly unemotional when looking at ideas uh, large cap, small cap, across sectors, uh, and around the world. So I think that kind of covers high level what you guys are trying to achieve in the strategy. Maybe the questions will focus on how then you're implementing that the, that kind of philosophy uh, on a discrete basis kind of in, in your respective strategy. So maybe I'll start with an opening question. Obviously, we get asked a lot. Um, 2015 was a year where it was very narrow leadership in the market in the uh, within the U.S. People talk about the FANG stocks incessantly. Within uh, your portfolio in the international growth side, obviously healthcare was a big contributor to returns uh, last year. But you've had meaningful corrections in the healthcare technology areas and a lot of kind of intra-sector dispersion in the consumer areas. So given your kind of areas of expertise, maybe walk through how you guys have been thinking about those areas, especially as kind of valuation-sensitive growth managers. Yeah. I, you know, um, I, I'd highlight healthcare here because I think it's a, it's a really interesting case study um, in, in how um, industries and future cash flows can be revalued and sometimes I think incorrectly revalued. Um, you know, after after healthcare outperformed the market materially in 2013 to 2015, the healthcare sector in, overall has underperformed the S&P by 500 basis points year to date. And actually, if you look at the biotech subsector, um, the, the numbers are much, much, much more dramatic. Um, and for the first time in several years, you actually have quite a few biotech companies um, with really interesting longer-term prospects that are being valued solely based on the discounted cash flows of their currently um, their currently marketable products. That means you're getting the pipeline for zero. Um, and 
many think that that's a very, very conservative way to look at these companies. So, you know, we've been taking a look at um, several names in the healthcare space and thinking about, wow, you know, where, where could you buy a pipeline or really call optionality on some of these companies continuing to generate cash flows over a longer period of time? And I think that there's some interesting opportunities there. So um, initially what we saw in the beginning uh, of 2016 and, and really sort of led over a little bit from the end of 2015 was a growth scare coming out of China. Um, also, the Fed uh, talking about raising rates was also something that, that was a big feature as well. Um, and that really hit uh, stocks that had done well at the end of the year, including healthcare. Um, and especially the emerging growth um, uh, stocks as well. Um, when you look at emerging growth companies, they tend to be ones that are very uh, low on free cash flow in the early years, very high in the later part of the year. So as you, as you think about taking up um, your risk-free rates, uh, et cetera, that tends to impact these emerging growth stocks pretty hard. Um, but that is the, the smaller part of the bucket. Uh, additionally, with the Fed rate increase, you had a very large um, uh, dollar move uh, up as well, um, and that really benefited uh, many non-U.S. names, uh, especially in healthcare and technology, where you have a very high uh, dollar exposure on the revenue side and the earnings side. Um, what we've seen generally in a lot of the large-cap uh, non-U.S. stocks is that, yes, they've had a very nice re-rating. In many cases, that hasn't been warranted. So, um, so when we look at, at the pharma side of healthcare, and healthcare is something that this portfolio has invested fairly heavily in and has done very well in, um, many of the large-cap healthcare names on the non-U.S. side really aren't that interesting, and we've been steadily reducing those. Um, so the way that we look at healthcare is we're looking for really asymmetric risk. We're looking for companies that develop in innovative products that the market has completely um, uh, not uh, valued properly. We have a name in Japan that's done very well for us around cancer. Um, and so we're really looking for innovative companies where sort of similar to biotech, the market completely has overlooked the size of the opportunity, and you're getting the company essentially without having to pay for that. So valuation, as you said, Margaret, is maybe really compelling right now. As you said, you're 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 getting in a lot of cases a pipeline for free. But you know, we you, you and I did a client meeting yesterday where people are talking about the political aspects and the regulatory aspects. Are there any things that you're having to consider differently now about that part of the equation than you did, let's say, nine months ago? Um. Well, you know, I, I think when you think about um, the political landscape, you mean in healthcare, healthcare yeah, in general, yeah. um, if you think about the political landscape and, and the possible ramifications of that, you know, we've been through the pipeline, uh, we've been through the portfolio and, and looked in detail at, you know, where we think um, there could be pricing pressure over time. Um, you know, as we, th I, I think you could actually say that, you could ask me the question, you know, why didn't you just, why didn't you just buy, you know, add to all of your existing positions? And what we've done instead recently is add new positions. And the reason we've done that is that as we think about um, pricing pressure and as we think about the binary risk that's, that's intrinsic to biotech companies as they report on, um, you know, clinical progress um, of their R&D uh, pipeline, there's volatility there. And to us, it made more sense to diversify that risk by adding new names as opposed to simply adding to the names that were already existing in the portfolio. So I think that's, an, that's a kind of a nice way of, um, of helping to manage what, what could potentially be a risk down the road. And, and I would also say, you know, that the, the things that we've been focusing on within biotech recently have been um, areas within biotech where we think they may be a little bit less sensitive to pricing pressure over time, and that is in, in the rare um, and, and orphan drug space. 
you know, uh, working with you guys, you know, kind of closely over the last few years, one of the things that you've noticed actually in your portfolios really in the last nine months is turnover and uh, you've exploited the volatility, right? You you really had a period from 2012 to early 2015 where you didn't have as much volatility and there must be a lot more things that are coming into your buying range right now. So talk about that, maybe that trade-off of uh, the vo exploiting volatility and then deciding, do I add to existing names versus kind of initiating new positions and how you guys have thought about this volatility? You know, there. Yeah, you know, I, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, we tend to be valuation-sensitive investors. I think what that means is that we separate the process of looking for good businesses from the question of where do you want to buy the stock. Those are two separate discussions. So there are lots of good businesses that are valued appropriately. Um, what we try to be proactive about is vetting the good businesses and then asking ourselves the question, okay, at what price would I love to buy the stock? Um, and what that, what that inherently does is it creates a nice shopping list for us with some kind of valuation sensitivity built into it so that um, when you do have the volatility, we've already done hopefully the work on a certain company, we've already vetted it, we already know it fits all the criteria of things that we look for within our portfolio, and then you know we're, we're poised to act, if you will. I think Adobe is, is a great example of that. You know, We started looking at that company in early 2015. Um, it's a terrific business model. They're, they're a leader in software for creative professionals. We determined that they still have a lot of runway for growth in, in converting suite users to subscription users and in monetizing pirated software. Software. Once we vetted the business, then we put it on our wish list with, with a price in mind. Um, and when the stock sold off in August, that was a great opportunity to add, we think, for, for, to a company that, that's going to be a nice long-term core holding for us. So um, on, the, on the international side, uh, again, we've seen quite a bit of volatility, um, primarily around currencies, around emerging markets, around cap ranges. So we have a lot of uh, different things to think about. Um, but we have a list of names that uh, we have liked for long periods of time. Again, business models that we think um, will stand uh, up to long periods of time. And we look for pullbacks, uh, which we were happy to get actually uh, in February. Uh, so we recently, recently purchased uh, one of the larger retailers in Europe um, with brands like Zara, Massimo Dutti, which are, are better known here. It's, um, uh, it has an 8 to 10 percent top-line growth rate, uh, on, which we think is, is, you know, can extend out for many, many, many years. Uh, it's going to be a winner on the online side as well as in um, just the store base itself. Um, and there's geographic expansion. And we got the opportunity to buy this because the market had been concerned about weakness in China, weakness in Russia, which had been an area that they had been uh, putting some money into building out the store base. Uh, so we do get these opportunities to buy what we think are great business franchises, um, and then we have to look to take advantage of them when we get those opportunities. If we look at what we've taken advantage of, let's say, in, in the first quarter, it's not just been in consumer discretionary or technology. Um, we also bought some consumer staples names, best-in-class consumer staple companies, um, where we see accelerating growth, things that are really sort of delinked from macroeconomic concerns. So we've had a lot of opportunities to buy into great business franchises. Additionally, the volatility that we saw in emerging markets coming from the energy and materials complex gave us some opportunities to buy inexpensive names in Canada and Australia, um, which we also which we also like. They are not actually linked to the commodity complex, uh, but will do well uh, with the stabilization in oil prices and materials uh, as well. 
So as I said, the, the title of this kind of podcast is Finding Growth in a Low-Growth Environment. And I think the question probably our team gets the most is, okay, where do you find top-line growth you know, in, in, in this environment? You've had a lot of the earnings growth and multiple expansion come from cost-cutting, buybacks to get earnings accretion, those type of things. So let me ask you, at this point in the cycle, are you thinking more about let's find a theme where we think there's insulation from the economy and then try to find the company? Or is it more bottoms up where you're find, trying to find that really, you know, kind of unique case of a company um, that, that's just attractive on its own, you know, its own merits? Maybe, Elisa, I can start with you on that one. Uh, sure. So I think we, we look at many different things. And, again, we don't try to pigeonhole ourselves into one way of looking at growth. So we do look at certainly share gainers um, that have superior business models, um, names like Ryanair, which we've owned in the portfolio for a long period of time. We think it can double the planes that it has uh, in the ground and, on, and hopefully in the air. Um, we, uh, we also like look at companies that can develop innovative products, uh, which will able to get pricing. Uh, we're also looking at structural trends, call them thematic, things like outsourcing, security, renewables. Um, there's there's quite a, a number of, of different um, aspects to look at. Uh, the nice thing about having the model is it allows us to see this in a very systematic way because we're looking at valuation and growth. Um, and we do try to think about things as, as sort of delinked from the macro world, if you will. I mean, we're seven years into a very decent economic cycle. So certainly, as we think about sort of the next five years, we do have to think how long can the cycle really persist and, and how closely do we want to be aligned to uh, the macro economy. Anything you'd add there? Um, yeah, I'd, I'd agree with Elisa. You know, one of the things that we've been thinking about and have been doing in, in the back half of 2015 and early 2016 is thinking a lot about companies that are, that are in control of their own destiny. You know, Aetna is a good example of that. Um, it's nice that it's largely U.S.-based, so, so you don't have to worry about FX or what's going on in emerging markets. But a, a good deal of their growth over the next couple of years is going to come from cost savings and synergies as a result of the Humana, um, the Humana merger. And it's a couple multiple points cheaper. Um, than the preeminent company in that space. So there's a company that, barring real extreme shifts in, in GDP, um, it's, it's a company that's going to continue to generate nice revenue growth and, and nice profit growth. Um, I, would, I would say, though, it's interesting because there's been a lot of talk about the FANG stocks and um, how last year's leadership was so narrow. But if you actually look at the, the stocks within FANG, I mean, Facebook's outperformed the market by 9 percentage points year to date. So what does that tell you? It tells you that um, they still actually have very good growth. They still have a lot of durability to their growth. Um, they still have a lot of runway for growth. They still have very high profitability. And there's a big moat around their business. Um, and, and frankly, if you look at their, their PE multiple, it's not crazy given the growth that they're getting. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm not convinced that those kinds of growth stories, um, still in some ways, you know, a secular growth story, so one that's in control of their own destiny, I think those kinds of companies are going to continue to be fine. So you know that you, I'll, I'll tie to something you just said made me think of a question. You know, I know both of you guys are kind of bottoms-up investors, but there's hardly a day where our clients don't ask us about the overall macro environment. And this year, I think you have a kicker of a political cycle in the U.S. And at least on your side, people are talking about Brexit incessantly, right? Um, so until it's always March, until June 24th. Yes, yes. Uh, until they find the next thing to talk about. Okay. So it's always dangerous, I think, to think this time is different. Um, but is there anything you're paying more attention to, either on the political level, 
um, or on the macro level, you know, oil for you, 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 you maybe have to think a little bit less about currency in emerging markets, but that's a lot of what you have to think about, Elise, and just how do you think and, and how are you kind of triangulating all these kind of variables, or is it something that you're actually trying to kind of insulate from your kind of decision-making process at this point in the cycle? So, yes, I agree with you. It's dangerous to say politics don't matter because in the short term they sure do. Um, but usually, um, I mean, we had Scotland last year. This year we have Brexit. Um, the U.K. tends to like this sort of political brinksmanship, which sort of provides some, some volatility in the market. Uh, typically, if you look at uh, the stocks that we have in the portfolio, you know, if there was um, an exit by the U.K. and the market uh, did what people are, are anticipating, um, you know, weaken the economy would weaken, our stocks would actually perform quite well because they tend to be kind of more of the bigger multinationals. Um, so they tend to have a higher proportion of their sales uh, and earnings, rather, outside the U.K. Um, we do look at political uh, issues. Certainly what's going on in Brazil is, is very important. Um, what's gone on in Russia and how um, that sort of plays out in the Middle East is certainly very important to sort of, you know, oil and commodities. Um, there is always an election somewhere. Um, so we try not to make that a, too big of a focus. And, and when we look at how the portfolio is allocated, we tend to be a little bit more neutral around many of these big geographies such that one event uh, certainly shouldn't upend the portfolio. Um, uh, it's certainly, it's uh, the U.S. Uh, political um, environment. Um, I guess I think it's a little bit too early to, to call here, but it's certainly something that's getting a lot of attention on the non-U.S. side. Uh, hopefully we're not going to, to change a lot of the agreements that have, have been put in place. But, um, uh, yeah, politics is, is certainly something that we're, uh, we're having to pay a little bit more attention to, at least in the near term. Anything on your side? I, I would add two things. I guess first and foremost, when I think about our views on the macro. I mean, for us, I think what, an area that we spend a lot of time on considering we're a U.S. large cap growth manager is China because it has ripple effects on a lot of our multinational companies. And and I think the the important um, answer there is that I'm, I'm not an expert in predicting what exactly is going to happen with China, China, but you want to make sure you manage that balance between having some exposure to um, to a longer-term growth area um, and managing your risk and overexposure to that area. So we think a lot about that within industrials. You want to make sure you have some exposure to that if China does accelerate, but you obviously don't want to have too much exposure um, to some of those markets. Um, as it relates to political risk and how you think about that, I would just remind you of what where UNH was trading around the implementation of Affordable Care Act two and a half years ago. I mean, this, that stock was less than 10 times PE, and people people assumed that they were never going to grow again. So when I think about political risk, I first ask my question, my, myself the question, okay, well, is the business model changed? Is something structurally broken here, right? Um, with UNH, it clearly was not broken, and the multiples doubled. And so as long as you're willing to be patient and look through through the noise and through the um, the absorption of whatever that is, I think actually it can create a lot of opportunity. Yeah. You know, we live in an age of information overload, and seemingly we know a lot about – a little about a lot. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so the question I would close with for, for each of you is, you know, I guess after 2008, the term black swan is used by everybody. And maybe to tie it to politics with uh, Donald Rumsfeld, there are known unknowns. But are there any unknown unknowns at this point? Are there any things that you think from an investment perspective you're spending a lot of time either thinking about the opportunities or real risk that you think a lot of people 
aren't talking about in the marketplace today? So I'll, I'll start. So um, the thing that that always worries us is uh, credit risk. Um, we've certainly seen a lot of financing on the high yield side. Uh, we saw towards the end of 2015 and into 2016 uh, that nervousness on the credit side uh, could really sort of bleed through into equity markets, into financing, into, into all sorts of things. Um, and that was something that was pervasive across the world um, to different and varying degrees. So uh, credit risk is something that we watch very carefully. Um, and is something that we sort of continue to have our eye on. And so companies that are sort of in the process of levering themselves up here in a low growth, in a low interest rate environment, uh, is something that makes us very nervous. We do know that interest rates are going to go up at some point, um, and maybe perhaps sometime soon. Uh, and so those companies that have a little bit too much leverage, I think, are going to be really volatile going forward. Um, you're going to see multiple contraction. You're going to see um, some, some big sort of business problems, and that's, that is something that we worry about. And certainly you've seen that in the energy space, right? I mean, you've seen that acutely happen, for example, in one sector right away, right? Right. Uh, Absolutely. I, I think technology and disruption, uh, it's not something we've really talked about here, but uh, certainly with the advent of sort of digitization and, and many, many other things uh, going on, there is a lot of traditional businesses that are being disrupted. I mean, we could talk about retail and the Internet, um, but there's many things. Even traditional auto is potentially being disruptive. And, and what are those implications for economies, uh, wages, workers? Um, those are things that maybe are only just subtly now starting to become better understood. Um, but I think there's some, some, some big issues that political um, groups are going to have to start dealing with and governments are going to have to start dealing with. I don't know that I can distill it down to, to one black swan. I mean, honestly, I could think about, you know, you have problems with um, inequality in incomes. You could say I have problems with um, potentially deflation. <laughs> there may be problems with emerging markets. There may be pro problems with bubbles bursting in China. I think the point is, you know, there, there are probably 10 potential black swan events that, that could be out there in the next several years. I think that's why it's important to just make sure that you diversify your portfolio. And that, you know, that's something that I, I'm sure that you guys do too. Um, in terms of, um, you know, when when you see one of your one of your stocks that has is closer to failure value than not, or a certain certain group of our select stable or cyclical buckets gets too big, you know, we trim that. And so we try to be sensitive to managing those risks and always thinking about do you have too much emerging markets exposure? Do you have too much energy exposure? So that when that unforeseen happens, because it will, um, we can manage through it appropriately. Yeah, one of my teammates talks about this. There's a lot of black swan events out there. It's the question is what, what's the probability you put on them? Mm -hmm. They're all possibilities. The question is what are the probabilities and if there's anything uh, that's really, really – Interesting. I remember um, speaking to a, a, a very um, bright uh, retail investor um, in 2007 – and um, he was having terrible performance and, and was struggling because he was very bearish on the U.S. consumer. And he was absolutely right, <laughs> but several years too early. Yeah. And so, you know, it's, it's a matter of managing those risks with the opportunities. Yeah. In an environment where opportunity cost to, to be wrong is, seems to be a lot, a lot tighter than it used to be. So with that, um, thanks, Margaret and Lisa, for your time. Uh, for the listeners, uh, we hope you enjoyed our latest uh, ClearBridge podcast. Please reach out to your appropriate point of contact from either ClearBridge or our parent company like Mason for additional information or questions that may have resulted from this dialogue. And we hope you have a great day. Hope to have you download one of our future podcasts very soon.
This concludes today's podcast. You may now disconnect.